have been recording introductions to this podcast for the last 45 minutes, recording them, hating them, deleting them, trying again, and I'm just not going to do it anymore. This is it. You're going to get it. Like, I keep thinking, I listen to them, and that's like it doesn't have the that special quality. It isn't clever enough. It doesn't have some profundity to it. And I'm done. I'm done trying. The je ne sais quoi that I've been looking for, forget it. Because here's the deal. I didn't even expect to be doing this episode. I got a note from a friend saying, remember Dave Warnock, who was on the show three years ago, who was dying of ALS, that, that kind of profound guy that you talk to? They're like, what's up with him? And I realized, geez, in my COVID craziness, where I just wasn't reaching out to anybody, I just fell out of touch. And as I'm having to do a lot these days, you know, I ended up going like, well, I should reach out and check in. And he was like, yeah, I'm still alive. Let's catch up. Since he was on the podcast and, and, and a lot of people really dug that episode, I thought, let's, let, let's go after him again. Let's get him on the show and we'll catch up in real time. And so this is me and Dave Warnock catching up in real time. I still love this guy. And so if you're curious about what happened to him, if you're wondering, like, I didn't know if I would ever talk to him again, um, but I did and he's still delightful. And I'm really glad to share this conversation with you. So enjoy it. This is me and Dave Warnock, chopping it up on Humanize Me. When I talk to you, mm -hmm. I mean, there was no book, obviously, but also you were, I don't want to say at the front end, but like you were. Oh, just very much front end. Yeah. You were kind of at the front end. Oh, of, yeah. It was just, I was just take, getting, taking um, any, accepting opportunities to speak on podcasts like yours and and just kind of getting out there I, no one knew who i was i wasn't uh, a sought after speaker i wasn't even a sought after podcast guest people like you and seth andrews would go who's this guy i don't know maybe i'll have you okay i guess i'll have him you know that was that was kinda, well, you had you had that woman that was relentlessly yeah, like marie, you need to have him yeah marie was my champion and she basically took took on the role of my agent and p arthur and she just started emailing and calling shows like yours and people like you and others took a chance on me and, and just said, well, yes, an interesting story. Let me have him on. So yeah, it was just the very beginnings of all that. Well, you know, it's funny because John and I, we were just like, we have this little supporters, you know, like, like, like most podcasts, like there's the people that actually support the podcast financially. Right. right. And we make a special episodes for them. Right, your Patreon where we sort supporters. Of, mm -hmm. It's behind the scenes, like where we talk about the podcast, like yeah. John and me and Katie, the other producer. Like we just we're just talking. Yeah, and we were talking the other day about an interview that I thought had gone really badly, <laughs> and they were like, "But you know, a lot of information got out there." Was, and I was like, "Yeah, but like I realized that I judge like I judge an episode or, or an, a conversation." on whether or not at the end of it, I feel close to that person. Hmm. Like whether I become friends with them. Yeah, that's that's an interesting observation actually. Which, which may not be, you know, I don't think a lot, <laughs> when I think of like Bill Maher or, you know, or Mark Maron, I don't think they probably have that same, that's not the bar for them. Right. Um, but like I had interviewed this woman and like, it was very informative and we got a lot of information out there, but like, I didn't ever feel like I got to her as a person mm. and really got to know her. And I feel like if, she, if, if I bumped into her at a cocktail party, she wouldn't be like, Oh my gosh, Bart, like we need to grab a cup of coffee. Yeah. Like I, like I didn't become friends with her. 
Yeah, I understand that. I think that speaks to who you are and and how you relate with people on a very, I guess, emotional and visceral level. And and it's it's not just a professional thing for you. It's it's well, oh, you're human. Yeah. You're the human. Humanize me. I mean, so, so the weird thing, right? So the weird thing is when you came on, I didn't know you, right? But like by the end of that conversation. I was, I was deeply invested, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I felt like we were friends. Yeah. And yeah. then you ended up showing up in Cincinnati for right. something. Well, I was speaking at the uh, Tri-State Freethinkers group. Your wife came to the meeting. You were busy that night, but you had breakfast with Bevan right. and, and then the we next went, morning. Right. right. We went out for, we went out, to the, the four of us, we went yeah. out afterwards. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. See, like it really, it wasn't phony. Like we really were friends. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's true. It's really true. And and you can't fake that kind of stuff. You either connect with someone or you don't. And and I I feel the same way. There's people that reach out to me now and, and they want to connect with me when I'm in town or when they see me at a conference or something. And some of them I've become really good friends with just because we jived. And others, yeah. nothing, no discredit to them or me or anybody. It just didn't connect. Yeah. For no, no reason. So, but, but like, so many other people, COVID, you know, co like obviously COVID shut you down. Yeah. You know, it shut me down. And, and what's funny is like for me, it didn't just shut me down sort of professionally in terms of travel or this or that or the other. It shut me down emotionally. Like, did it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've had a, I had a really hard time. I don't even know if I'm all the way back. Mm. Um, and, and my energy for connecting which is kind of my main superpower. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I was still okay with people that were like plunked down in front of me. Like if somebody was sitting in front of me, I still had energy for that person. But the energy to reach out and mm -hmm. make connections, like, yeah. it, that, that was a long time coming back. I, I can, I could, yeah, I can totally relate. It, it really kicked me in the gut too, COVID. I, I had such momentum going uh, we we were scheduled to speak in amsterdam and england and germany and the uk i mean all over the world and I, my calendar was just full and i was just so charged up because i love doing that and i felt like i had an important message and connecting with the people and then it all just stopped i mean overnight um we canceled one trip to salt lake city the night before we were supposed to leave on a plane at seven in the morning and i just felt like bart it was time I didn't have because my time was so limited. I felt like I've got a year or two, maybe three at the most where I can do this sort of stuff with any kind of strength. And, and for COVID to take that time away from me really honestly made me mad, you know, not mad at it. I couldn't direct it at anyone, but it just like was a real kick in the gut. Like, the, I really, I'm going to spend the last couple of years of my life hiding in a house because of some fucking virus. And so, <laughs> it took me a while to to get over that and to come out of that funk and start to apply myself. And I guess really, when I when I really decided, okay, now I'm going to focus on writing this this book. And I, I did every single day for two to three hours a day I was writing. And it was just like disciplined medicine I was taking every day. It wasn't like it was hard to do. It was just like I made myself go every day and write. And if I didn't get a day of writing in, I was like 
completely disoriented, like this day is going off the rails. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like for you in the, in the sense of, like you said, you, you know, you already were on short time. Yeah. So if somebody wastes your time. It, it was really tough. You got to really take tough. it really personally. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the funny thing is the, the only thing that I, I'm like, when you said I couldn't really direct it at anyone. What I found was the one thing that I found people doing during COVID was directing their anger at someone, mm -hmm. like at all those fucking morons who aren't wearing their masks. Yeah, well, or I did that. Donald have, Trump. Or <laughs> I did have a lot of anger directed at them, thinking you're making this worse. You can drag it out. It's going to be longer because you idiots won't get with the pro. Yeah, there were plenty of that. There was plenty of that. Yeah, you're right. I was I was mad at them. Now, who did you hole up with? Well, Bevan and I just hold up, you know, she's, you met Bevan. She's my partner. We've been together three, three and a half years now. And we just, we were here at the house. I did find a coffee shop after the, you know, after the brunt of it. And we kind of settled into realizing what it was. And we started getting vaccines and stuff. Then I would go to the coffee shop every day and, and do my writing and, and wait for things to open back up. Um, so yeah, we were just kind of, hunkered down here in Charlotte and just kind of waiting out the storm. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody has a, this is my life before COVID. This was my life exactly. during COVID. BC. <laughs> everybody has that. But for you, I, I just got to think that those days and months felt different. Cause like, I mean, you were in your moment, right? Like yeah. this was, this was, you, you, like you, you weren't a super famous Christian when no. you were a Christian. No. And then you weren't a super famous ex-Christian, and then suddenly you were. Not not super famous, maybe a B-lister. <laughs> but like you, but, were in, you were in demand. People you're wanted right. you People to come and talk to me them. out. Yeah, yeah, and 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 looking, you know, I became a known commodity, and and it was it was I felt like it it was something that I had been able to take this this ALS diagnosis and turn it around and, and really make it meaningful and give give it use it to give really a lot of purpose and inspiration to people you know getting tons of messages all the time from people who were resonating with what I was saying and it was it was I know from my days as a as a, as a kind of a traveling evangelist right that you would end up with a message and then like you'd go from town to town and you would figure out kind of what worked and you would you would hone it and you really like there came a point where you're like i've got this message down yeah when, when you got your message down what was your message like what was the essence of what the you were essence saying? of the message is the dying out loud is the name we gave my organization and my my message but the essential crux of it is living out loud, essentially saying you've got this one life and no matter what has come your way in this life, you and only you have the ability to make it meaningful. You and only you have the ability to write a unique story. And if you don't like the way your story is being written, that means you've given that authority over to a mythical God, an authority figure a family member, a spouse, someone else is writing your story. And it's up to you. If you don't like the way it's being written, it's up to you to take the pen out of their hands 
and write your own story and finish it the way you want to. And facing a terminal illness and saying those kind of things had a pretty powerful impact on people looking at their own lives and wondering, what am I doing with the limited time that I have here? And it, it, it really, from just people I've heard from over and over and over again, it really caused people and allowed people to focus their attention and energies in ways that they hadn't before. And that now, was the essence of what I was talking about. Now, now, if I take that message and I think like, okay, that, that was the gospel you were preaching. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, the, like, where did you get that gospel? Who preached that to you? Like, where did you get that idea when you think back on it? Because, I mean, you grew up in the church. Yeah. I I think it's because I was always, by necessity, a resilient person. And, and as I wrote my memoir, a lot of this came to the surface that, um, you know, when you write stuff, it, it kind of brings out things that are pushed back and hidden and forgotten. And as I was writing my story and walking back through the years, I realized that um, even my son said it when he got he read the book. I was holding my breath as he read it because there's a lot of difficult stuff in there uh, for my kids to read. My own failures and and the conflicts with the church and the shunning from my daughters and those kind of things. But he said, "Dad, I didn't realize you went through so much shit. You really overcame a lot of stuff." And and, and he meant long before ALS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just didn't realize what I had what my life had been like. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a plan in my life. I didn't, wasn't well prepared for anything. I wasn't educated. I didn't go to college. All the, everything was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And, and, and as I looked back on that, I think it, it fomented in me a resilience and um, almost a survivalist mentality to figure it out and get it done. No matter what happens, just figure it out and get it done. And so that's that ideology, I guess, that I really didn't even realize was there until I started writing about this life I've lived, this chaotic life. Um, I think it, it, it served me well when I got diagnosed with ALS to where my mind just immediately, Bart, went to, okay, this is what it is. Now what? There was no anger. There was no self-pity. There was no why me. It was just, and that's not to my credit. It's just how I was wired. And so all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, now what do I want to do? You know, what's this, what do I have left and how am I going to use it? And that's, you know, it served me well in the last three and a half years because yeah. that's, that's essentially what, what but, uh, rose to the surface. But I mean, like, I'm going to press you two places. And the one place is I'm going like, cause I want to know. You know, you say, my son said, I, I didn't realize we went through so much. And I'm like, what'd you go through? Yeah. Like, like what, what, what was he talking about? What struck him? What, what was it that he didn't know? Two things that struck him. One, he, he knew some of the stuff. There, there were a lot of important people in my life that were, that were killed prematurely. Uh, a niece, a best friend, um, uh, church members that I was close to when I was in leadership over them. Things that impacted me. Uh, pretty severely. And then secondly, the struggle to just make it, to make a living, to support a, a wife and three kids and pay a mortgage every month um, without 
without the skills and tools that I should have had, you know, because I was just ill prepared in life. And, you know, he said, he said, like, I never knew that, that you felt such financial pressure all the time because you never showed us that, dad, you just, you know, took care of us. And we got all, we all got off to college and we all got weddings that we wanted. And, but I would, you know, I would refinance the house to do it and those kind of things. And he didn't know any of that. <laughs> Excuse me. So no, which, I think- is, which is crazy because like, I, you know, and I'm thick, like, no, it's like, I got to get that memoir. Um, because, yeah. because I, you know, I don't read many deconversion memoirs anymore because they're all the same. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I believed all this stuff that was jammed down my throat. And then like, I started thinking, or I had an experience that made, that showed me that it wasn't true. And then like, I, yeah, I started yeah. reading books and now I'm not. Yeah, you know? no, I know. I know. And that's, I was really thinking, oh God, another deconversion story. My God, that's just what we need. Right. But, 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 what, but what strikes me is like, none of them that I can remember, none of the people I've talked to about their deconversion stories bring sort of financial pressure or poverty yeah. into the narrative where they go like, part of what was going on was I was trying to believe in a God that takes care of you. Right. And I wasn't getting real well taken care of. That's a big part of the, that's a big part of it. I think you'll like it. I'll send you a copy because I've been, I've been told over and over and over again that people, one of the first things they say is I, I couldn't put it down. I, I read it in, in two days or I listened to it and in 15 hours or that's whatever. Fun to hear, uh, yeah, that that's very rewarding. And that was, but I had a woman help me who, who was a, she was a contributing writer and she's a, a creative writing professor at a college level. And so she really knew how to make this thing pop and make it so that it's just not a, a narrative, it, but it reads like a novel and it's, it's got a, and so, yeah, it's, I'm very pleased with, how I told the story and it wasn't in just this linear narrative fashion, but it has a lot of scenes and dialogue. And like one of her things was, you know, if you have something to tell, don't tell it, show it and bring it to life that way. And so really, it really came out uh, much better than I, than I really even could have hoped. Uh, That's nice. Yeah. So I'm very pleased that I finally got that done. It's (laughs) one of those things that everybody, you know, when you, when you tell, Hey, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. Okay. You and everybody else on my block, you know? So, so, you know, if the message is, you know, if you don't like the way your story's being written, you know, you've got to take control of it and start rewrite and rewrite it. Mm -hmm. Um, at what point, like, at what point in your in in your narrative, like was this before you even left the faith? Like, at what point do you feel like I got that message? You know, it took me way too long to get that message. Obviously, I stayed in the faith for three and a half decades, knowing even in many of those years, tamping down the doubts that would surface and the questions that would surface and pushing them aside and and brushing them down and moving on and plunging forward. Uh, even after the, uh, coming out of that faith, and then I dealt with the shunning from my daughters and the, and the disconnection of my family and a, a marriage that w- was increasingly not working because she stayed in the faith. It took several years of that uh, before I came to a place where, and it was it's a scene I'm, uh, where I'm at the beach, my favorite place in the world. And, and it's just this 
epiphany that I'm having about who gets to write my story, who gets to tell the tale, who gets to to finish this thing. It's me. It's only me. It's always been me. And I gave it over to a God. I gave it over to church authorities. I gave it over to family pressures, trying to appease family members that I couldn't do anything about. It was only after letting go of all of that, that at that late part of my life, I realized, wait a minute, I can write this thing. I can finish it. So it was a long, long journey to get to the place where I finally gave myself permission to take the pen and write it the way I wanted to write it, regardless of who liked it or didn't like it. You've got to get, I shouldn't say you got it. I had to get to the place where I just didn't give a fuck what anyone else thought about the story I was writing. And that's a hard place to get to. If you're kind of a people pleaser and you want to always make peace. When I got to the place where I didn't care who thought what about my story, that was absolutely liberating. Hey, let's just take a quick break right now. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Katie, a behind-the-scenes producer of this podcast. If you'd like a Humanize Me t-shirt or hoodie, they actually exist. Our merch is exclusively available to supporters of the show on Patreon. You can check out the options at patreon.com backslash humanize me. This is just one of the many ways we try to thank those who make the show happen every month. So, like, seriously, I'm, I'm serious. Thank you. And now, back to the show. I think, and maybe it's for everybody, but I know growing up in the church, it was, it was, the whole family thing was so emphasized. And so, the idea that your kids have a story about you that isn't true. Like, I, like I, I've, I'm finding a lot of my friends who have been deconverted telling me like that the most painful thing about it is that their teenage kids or their grown kids, like when they, like, like when they, they know that when somebody asks their kid, hey, so what about your folks? And yeah. Like, oh, my dad was a good man. Yeah. But then he lost his faith mm-hmm. and his moral compass went away and he left my mom and, you know, and they're telling us that their own children and they're not lying about their parents. That's the story they believe. Yeah. That's um, their narrative. Right. That's their narrative. And it's true to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and that, you know, and I will watch people bending over backwards, doing everything they can, trying to gently massage their kids narrative like like or or living their lives in such a way as to try to influence that narrative because they can't stand the idea that their kids see them that way yeah it's a hard thing and i've i've wrestled with that uh that's a big part of what it took for me to come like i just mentioned to the place yeah. where i could where Take i could that write that story regardless of what my kids and interestingly enough yeah what ha- what's happened with your kids well i was going to say uh when that happened, I went through several years of when when I told my kids I no longer believed and I now identified as an atheist. My two daughters, um, their response was to cut me off completely and and also to cut my wife off because she stayed married to me as an atheist and their pastor said she should have divorced me, although that's nowhere in the Bible. Um, 
My and son, how old were they? How old were they? Oh, they were married um, in their in their thirties, um, early thirties. This was maybe five, six years ago, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, my son stayed connected with me. We've always had a good relationship. There was some strain there after the divorce, but that healed over pretty quickly. But um, so that went on for several years, where I had no contact with my girls, my girls or their kids, my grandchildren, six grandchildren between them. And so for five or six years, nothing. And I moved on with my life and I came to that place where I told you I wrote, decided to start writing my own story. And I became as, after my diagnosis, as vocal and as public as anyone can be about my atheism and about my disbelief. And in fact, going after pretty harshly evangelicalism and fundamentalism and the dangers contained therein. Well, both of my daughters are married to men who were in pastoral ministry or at least training for it. One of them still is. The other one has gone on to be become a doctor or training to be a doctor. But my oldest daughter and her husband moved to Florida from Nashville, where we all were at the time, to start a church. And they're now involved in active evangelical ministry. And so here I am as a vocal, outspoken atheist activist, um, speaking out pretty much against uh, all the dangers of fundamentalism and what it does to people. And they're very much involved in in planting and 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 doing church in in the. But they are very sincere. They're very much focused on people and loving people and serving people. I I never have faulted my kids for pursuing their convictions because that's what I trained them to do. And I think I've, I've been told also that came through in the book that I wasn't ever lashing out at anyone in the book. I was always throwing myself under the bus and no one else, which I really did try to be very good with that and not, not go after anyone. I, bl- I blame only myself for my failures and shortcomings. But strangely enough, my yeah, older but daughter- wait, but wait. Did your daughter shun you because of a failure and shortcoming, or did they shun you just because that was their conviction? That was their conviction. Yeah. So on some level, I know I know it sounds terrible, but like, if there is no God, then there's nobody to blame because right. it's God who was telling them to shun you. Well, and a pastor, <laughs> right? But, okay. but I didn't fault them for it because I right. I felt like you know what, that's what I want. I want everyone to be true to their convictions, and I would want them to see that about me. So I would want them to look at their dad and go, you know what? I don't agree with his position, but at least he's sincere and he is being true and authentic and honest. And do you so, have any? Do you have any sense of what they're thinking now? Well, my older daughter has come around in the last couple of years. I don't know why. I don't know how, but we have renewed contact, and I have seen my grandkids a couple of times. We went down and took Christmas presents to them in Florida. And we have this ongoing dialogue on Marco Polo and texting, and it's cordial. We don't talk about her church stuff. She doesn't talk about my atheist stuff, but we're very involved and connected in her grandkids, my grandkids, you know, pops, and we miss you. We love you, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what caused that. I sent out a message a couple of years ago for Christmas to both daughters and said, can I get the grandkids something? Bethany responded, we'd love for that. I didn't respond. Just ignored me. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's come, what's changed. But the the point of that is, and I talked about this at a conference in Nashville last weekend when I spoke 
about being true to who you are and being unashamed. If I'm an atheist, I want people in my life to know that. I don't want to be embarrassed or hide behind that. That's just who I am. That's my response to the God claim, period. Um, I want my kids and grandkids to, like you said earlier, you know, what are your kids going to say about you? What is their story? What is their narrative? My best hope is that even if they disagree with my position, they will say, my grandkids will say, well, Pops was authentic and honest and was true to his convictions till the day he died. That to me is the best thing someone can say about you. Yeah, that's, I'm weighing that. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm weighing, I mean, like, it, it sounds good to me, but then I well, go like, not if I'm a, you know, a mass murderer because that's my convictions. But as long as I'm doing things that I believe are good and kind and in the interests of the people around me, if I'm not trying to to overtly hurt people, there, yeah, you could you could be true to your convictions if the but your convictions could be really Yeah, your convictions are 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 can are in a sense like I'm really interested in somebody's convictions, but I'm probably more interested in their values. That's true too. Um, so they and, have and to be, your convictions have to be wed to some basic good values. What you believe matters, but what you care about matters more. And Absolutely. so like on some level, I think it's really, you know, I, I hope that my grandkids sort of go like, he really cared about people or like, yeah. you know, he, he tried to be a good man. Uh, yeah. And all this stuff. No, I and think then you that's, guys, well, that's what did a valid believe? point. That's a valid point. So yeah, my convictions have to be married to some ideology that is genuinely good for people and, and that people can say, well, you know, Dave was, was spending his last days trying to help as many people as he could manage their way through this difficult life. I mean, that is, I mean, you know, your convictions happen to line up with mine, mm -hmm. but like we're friends because your values are something that I really admire. Yeah. Like, I, like, like, it's nice that you agree with me, but like, I gotta be honest, I can go to any atheist convention and find 50 people who agree with me who I can't stand. <laughs> yeah, like, like they're just not nice people. Yeah, totally. And, and, and they're not devoted to like using their last ounce of their energy to make things better for others because that gives them joy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, okay. Like, like uh, their convictions I agree with, but their values, like, like it's not, it's more important for them to be right than it is for them to be kind. That's true. Like, so ah. convictions are not enough. You have to yeah. have the a values a value system that is is genuine genuinely good for people. So so it sounds like losing your daughters, which happened before the ALS. Yeah, and then and then eventually you lost your you lost your marriage. Yeah, after trying to hold it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it sounds like those those were the places where you did have that experience of like, all right, this is it is what it is. Now what? Mm -hmm. Like you had already, you'd already developed a kind of, uh, an approach to train wrecks that said, when faced with a train wreck, you figure out like what you can make out of it. Right. And so when ALS came, that was just that, one, more, that was just one it, more train wreck. It's just one more train wreck. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it, Bart. It is. Cause I'd already come to the place of learning how to adapt and adjust to the things that come your way that you feel like you don't have control over. And then, so when, when I get dealt that card, it was just like, oh shit, this is a big one. Right. But I've already learned how to adapt and adjust. So now let's, let's see what we do from here. So, so some of the folks that are listening to this conversation, they heard our first conversation and they like, mm -hmm. they know 
some of the backstory here. And, you know, the rest of them, like, told you, gave you some of the highlights. But, but, but I've had a few people, and it's interesting because, like, just recently, sort of say, hey, Dave Warnock, how's he doing? Mm-hmm. That conversation meant a lot to me. But, like, is he still alive? Yeah. You know, is he, you know, and I found myself sort of going, like, yeah, aren't you supposed to die soon? Like, isn't that your, <laughs> isn't that your brand? Um, Dying out loud. Yeah. What, what? In, in all seriousness, like, how are you doing? It's slowing. It's, uh, the, the ALS is such a, um, damnable disease because no one knows what causes it. Everyone's case is different and, and everyone's symptoms are different. The progression is different. I learned pretty early on, probably not before I did your interview last three years ago, but I learned that mine is a very slow progressing form of ALS. I didn't know it when I first got diagnosed. At first, I thought I may have a couple of good years. I've always looked at it not in terms of how many years I have to stay alive, but how many years I have to live. Years that have some quality to their substance, not just sitting in a bed unable to move and having to be fed and bathed. Those aren't years that are days that, that I'm even counting. I'm only counting the quality. And so I don't know what that looks like. I don't know where the line is or how many times I'll have to redraw it. But there's a point where I'll say, this quality is not enough for me to keep fighting to stay alive because I've long since quit living in sense. Um, and that's a, that's a hard thing to face for both me and Bevan in what that's going to look like as the progression continues to take my body away from me. So those, those first couple of years, I wasn't experiencing as many symptoms. It was mostly in my hands and arms. But in the last year, I've begun to, I've had to quit driving. Um, I pretty much need help eating most of the time, dressing most of the time, bathing. And so I'm more and more needing care to the, you know, ALS takes you to the place where you need constant care. Every, everyone dies from this disease. It's 100% fatal. It's just how much care you're going to need for how long. Those are the questions. So I've had to quit driving. I just recently bought a wheelchair on a trip. We were out in Europe and it was becoming too difficult to navigate the streets and hills. And so we bought a, a kind of a temporary chair, one that we can use and not use at, uh, here and there. Um, so things are slowly fading and um, it is slow, but it's mm-hmm. it's a very steady progression. You know, I saw you three years ago and, and we had breakfast, but if you saw me today, you would notice immediately the changes in my body and the way that I walk. And, and so it's, it's a difficult, I'm, I'm still able to talk and that's, you know, the breathing and talking is the last thing that goes before you're, you have trouble breathing and eating and you, that's when the, the end can come pretty quickly. So I feel like as long as I can do this and add value to people around me, to my own uh, value system and worldview and what I what I see to be important, which is connecting with people, as long as I can do that at the level I'm doing it, I'm okay. You know, it's tough to navigate the day for sure, and it's getting tougher. And- well, well, you know, I, I know there's psychological pain. Yeah. Like is there physical pain like are you are you suffering pain 
No, not only in, I have what cramp, I have cramps that come and go, uh, but they don't last long. And so it's not the kind of thing that is debilitating where I'm constantly in pain. It's that part's, that part's good. I, I don't have to deal with a lot of, you know, suffering on a daily level, like a lot of people with diseases do. It's just the lack of ability to do things right. and needing help. And, and those and, are mental adjustments you have to make as well. You have to quit worrying. And when we're in a restaurant and Bevan's feeding me or some friend is feeding me and people are looking at me uh, or when I fall, which is becoming more of an issue, you know, and I can't get up without help. Um, you know, you used to be embarrassed about that or I did. Um, and you just have to quit worrying about what people think and, uh, just move on with your day because I don't have the, the time and energy to try to massage people's feelings about me. <laughs> yeah. It comes back to that. I don't, give I don't a give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about my folks, mm -hmm. you know, who, cause it is an ALS, but on some level, like people just get old yeah. And their bodies start to go in one way or another. And my dad had that stroke. And when I think about them, I realize that Marty and I spend an inordinate amount of time now. Like talking about, is there any way that we can ensure mm -hmm. that we have control over our own deaths? Mm. Um, because what I'm realizing is, is that if you'd have talked to my parents 10 years ago, the people they were then would have looked at the people they are now and said, oh, no, no, I would prefer to die than to become that person. Yep. But but the people they are now don't want to die. It's tough, yeah. The people, they, the people they are now have a will to live. And and so what's interesting is, is that they made me promise that I would, you know, you'll take care of it, right? Yeah. yeah. But like, I don't know who to be loyal to, the person that they were that I made the you know promise to, or the person that they are that is, you know, will hang on till the bitter end, and you know, and they were you know because back then they made cogent arguments. about, I don't want to, I don't want to spend, like I don't want to spend my you know five years just like hanging there, like barely watching television. Like I don't want to. I would rather have this money be used for other things and given to my family members, my kids, my grandkids, and so like they had all these dreams. Yeah. of how they would end. And that's not going to happen. Right. Um, and I have dreams and, and also standards where I go like, I do not want to live under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have, like, first of all, do you feel like you're the same person that you were? Can you make a decision about your future and trust that your future self will honor the decision that your past self has made? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's going to change. And, and I've learned, I've learned, uh, again, we, we've talked about adjustments and having the ability to make those adjustments mentally and physically. Yeah. When I came to the place where, I, oh, I'm not, I'm not ever going to drive again. That's the thing about ALS when it takes something from you or any disease, same thing with your dad and his stroke. Um, it's that thought of, I'm never going to do that again. That is the last time I'm going to do this. And it's, it's like the finality of it is, is sobering. And the, the, the mental torment of that can be debilitating if you let it. 
I, I can really just get really pissed off about it. Or I can say, you know what, I'm going to have to figure out how to make this into a positive. You know what? Being driven around everywhere is not all bad. Not being expected to, to go help someone. You know what? If, if someone's doing physical stuff, I can just sit there and look at them and not feel guilty at all about not pitching in and helping. And, you know, smile and laugh and say, too bad, you guys, I can't help you. And, and that is the way I spin it on its head to make me more okay with it. And, and so that promise I would have made to myself three years ago that when it gets to this point, when I can't do this anymore, and I've drawn that line in the sand, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to hang it up. Well, that time may have come and gone, and I've adjusted that line to say, you know what, I, I can manage this, and I'm going to draw that line out a little further and see what I feel like when I get to that point. That's one part of this that I've, that I've adjusted to, but the second part is about those who are around me. I've had to learn that it's not just about what I want anymore, but what about Bevan, my partner? Because she's the one that gets left holding the bag when I decide to hang it up. When I decide that I can't do this anymore, then she's the one that wakes up the next day and I'm gone. I don't wake up. I go to sleep and I don't wake up. That's the easy part. That's the cop out. She has to wake up and somehow go on. And I've got to think of what she would want. Is she, does she want me to stay around longer, even if I can't do X, Y, or Z? And she's willing to do them for me just to be, to have me in the room with her and to have those conversations that we enjoy and to be able to look at me and smile. You know, it's not about me anymore. And that's been hard for me to adjust to. And it's a compromise, and it's a give and take, and we talk about it all the time. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny. Like, this sounds so mean, but I go like, how could you possibly think that she's going to be able to talk honestly with you about that? Well, I remember you talking about that with us in the cafe in Cincinnati <laughs> and telling her she's going to need help, and we know this. But she's, I think she's being as honest as she can in the moment. And I am too. When I say to her, you know what, when it gets to where I can't do X, Y, or Z, I'm not interested in sticking around. That's no quality of life for me. And she could say, well, I understand that, but it's a quality of life for me. Are you willing to compromise on this? Are you willing to give up X and Y if you still got Z? And those are just conversations. Hmm. I'm telling you, they're hard, man. They're hard. But I just wonder, like, what if it, what if it ever, I mean, I can, you know, I really like you, Dave. <laughs> I really do. But if I was taking care of you, I could imagine getting to the place where I would be like, your quality of life isn't good enough to be worth all the work I'm putting in yeah. to make it possible. And, and, yeah. No, that's fair. Where and, like, I'm, I'm like, not, not like you want to go and I'm saying, no, 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 stay for me. Where, where I'm like, you're like, I'm sticking around. And I'm like, you know, really time, it's time to go. You're a pain in the ass, man. I mean, because like, you know, her whole life has been, you know, for I the know. last few As, years has been wrapped up with taking care of you and it doesn't get better. It's going to get worse. Right. So no, there, there's, you're right. That, that. And how can she, how is she supposed to look you in the eye and say, hey, I'm ready for you to go? No, that's, that's tough too. I think, I don't know, just the way that we're made up, the two of us, it's, you know, it may shift. I don't, I don't know. It hasn't yet, 
but it may shift to where she's more ready for me to go than I am because she's just tired of dealing with my sorry ass. But at this point, it's been me saying, you know, no, 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 no I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get us to that right. point. But that may shift. Yeah, she and, and, and we deal. She she more than me gets on the ALS caregivers boards on, on the Internet and uh, fatigue and weariness for the caregiver is a real, real thing. Yeah. And it gets to the point, you know, why am I doing this? What's, what's the win here? What, and of course, the outside world, like the outside world is going to be like, oh, Bevan, you're a saint. Yeah, yeah. You're great. You're so amazing. And like people in Scotland are calling, are sending emails going like, you're, you know, but like. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. You wipe his butt for a, year, a week. Well, and that, and that, <laughs> right, that becomes the thing, like, like, you know, the idea of not giving a fuck what people think. We always think that's like not giving a fuck when people think that you suck. But like, you also have to not give a fuck when people think you're amazing, right. but they're not really in your life. Yeah, they don't know the real story. Yeah, we're going to do, uh, I think, you know, we've, I've got this show now that I want to have you come on as a guest pretty soon too, but we're going to do a show coming up in the next few weeks, a kind of behind the scenes of the ALS and the, what we deal with and what we wow. see coming down the road. Because a lot of the people that just see me from the shoulders up on a TV monitor, on a computer screen or a phone, they don't know what we're dealing with every day. No, they you don't. sound great. Yeah. And, well, yeah, Dave's great. What's He'll be around forever. No, 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 no. You need to see me walk up the stairs. You need to see her feed me. You need to see me fall down, um, not to get pity from anyone, just to pull back the curtain and show this is the real story here. And we just want everyone to, we want to be transparent with everyone and let people know that so, this is the stuff we struggle with every day. And so you're right. When we had breakfast, you know, I did sort of focus on Bevan and say, hey, you know, she was like, Dave's great. And Dave and I have this great relationship. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to need other relationships besides Dave. Yeah. And you're going to need relationships with people that aren't primarily loyal to Dave. Yeah. With all of these things, it's, it's all about understanding and not being frustrated and not having expectations that are unrealistic and just realizing that changes, uh, you have to accommodate for the changes physically and mentally, or you'll get frustrated and disappointed. You're such, you're such an ex-evangelical. Because, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because, no, no. What I mean is, is because you go like, it's all about this. And then you go like, it's just, you know, recognizing it. It's just, it's just, you know, recognizing this thing and doing it. And I think like, do you remember when we would be praying in evangelical church? Lord, we just ask we just you. Ask you we just ask you, Father God, we, we just thank you. We just ask you. We just, <laughs> just, 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 just is the word <laughs> of the century, right? And oh when I my God, like, it's so funny. It's a really bad thing that I came out of that movement with because I'll say things like, you know, you just need to recognize your limitations. And I go like, if I'd have said, you need to recognize your limitations. Why do we stick that word in there like that? That is right. It's so weird, but you're right. It's 100% true. It's a dangerous word because it makes it sound like something is a matter of course, like it's not that hard to do. And all the things you just were describing that you are doing to try to adjust, none of them strike me as inconsequentially easy. You're right. So, just, so I, be careful with the damn job. I just need to quit saying, I just need to just stop saying it. <laughs> when, when young people are always saying the word like, I'm very sensitive because I do it too. Yeah. And it's, 
it, may, it I always say to them and to myself that if you can discipline yourself to just leave empty space where the likes are, mm-hmm. you yeah, will don't seem, fill in with words. It, mm-hmm. it adds twenty points to your IQ. Like people yeah. will think you're so much smarter. Yeah, just say fewer words, and people think you're smarter. <laughs> when I used to preach um, in the in in that world, like I go to, I would always write at the top of my notes, like love the crowd or you know uh, like yeah. energy like something that was like just at the very top of the thing like remember like you care about these people mm-hmm. um and uh and it was it was super helpful and I, I think like if i was going to go speak right now i'd I write like don't say just don't unless say you just. mean <laughs> <laughs> that's a good note that's a good header note i'll probably do i'm speaking at a conference this weekend i may just put that at the top of my notes <laughs> all right so so where do we, from here? You've you appeared on everybody's podcast because of what's her name, the Wonder Woman, Marie. Yeah. Marie, is she still in your life? No, she's moved on. Uh, Bevan and I just kind of manage everything ourselves now, and I pretty much, um, I don't know how to say it without. You know, I'm out there now, so pretty much most people know, yeah, who I am, and they've reached out. I've been on most platforms multiple times, and and um, so you're saying I'm not special. You're very special, Bart. I was really <laughs> looking forward. I, I'd meant to reach out to you. In fact, I thought I'd had at some point, and then I just got busy. And um, but yeah, I'm really, oh, really no, glad. I'm so really glad. glad to I'm reconnect so glad to be reconnected. You. I really am. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, I, and, and you know, I'll always be grateful to Marie. Like, cause, yeah. cause I, I, I brushed her off the first, I did, I, I responded to her and said, you know, we usually pick our own guests and, yeah, and I don't, don't know who this guy is. Feel and, free yeah. to send me some of other episodes and we'll have somebody check it, you know? And she was just really precise. She's like, now I've listened to your podcast and he's the kind of person that you would like. And so well, yeah. I'm, I'll always well, be grateful to her. Yeah. Well, what's happening? Well, it's funny, like others, like Matt Delahunty and Seth Andrews and some others that at first kind of like you said, ah, you know, I don't know who this guy is. And so Marie would send them when I, when I'd done some other podcasts and stuff, she would send a, a copy of that to them and they, Oh yeah, he's, he's pretty good. I think I do want him on there. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that kind of started happening. So, so now you have your own, I don't know. Is it a podcast? What do you call it? No, a it's, YouTube a YouTube. Channel? it's a live stream YouTube show. It's on Monday nights live. Um, but I looked we, it up, and you can you can pull up the old episodes and listen oh, yeah, to it. Yeah, they're, you they're could treat it like a podcast if you wanted. We're actually, to. I've got a guy that's going to be download. He's going to be converting them to podcasts for me. We just haven't done that yet. We're slowing down and getting some things done okay. that we just haven't done. But yeah, it, it's available on YouTube. But we're going to convert. And it you to do the with some woman, platforms. right? Yeah, Genevieve. That's an that's a great story. She's. Um, I discovered her on TikTok, and I, I had in my mind to do a, a show of, of some kind, and I wanted to have something different than was out there. I didn't want it to be a traditional call-in show where people argued about God. Yes, he is. No, he isn't. Yes, he is. And I wanted to do topical things and talk about important conversations and ideas. And so, when I saw her on TikTok, she's a lifelong atheist and got involved in the the a deconstruction conversation because she saw what was happening in America and it troubled her. She's young, I think 28, 29, but just really sharp. So I reached out to her and we became, we've become incredibly close friends. She lost her dad suddenly 
um, a few months before we met. And I be, we've kind of developed this father-daughter yeah. dynamic that's just really, really precious to me and to her. So we've gotten to spend some time together in person. But yeah, we just developed this show and um, it, it really became something very important to both of us. And we've had just a, a lot of different kind of guests and topics and great conversations. And so it's it's been a nice journey. We've built a we're slowly building a steady following, and um, if if I was going to listen to if I was if if you were like this is the thing this is the episode that I love Bart like is there one episode I, and I know they're all your best children they were oh. all perfect but like is there one that you go like you know what Bart this was special this was something I really liked what what should I listen to um probably I'm just pulling this off the top it's it's a pastor friend of mine from Nashville named Stan Mitchell. And he's transitioned from uh, Pentecostal Church of God upbringing to a progressive LGBTQ friendly uh, pastor. He now works in the space of trying to help parents of gay teens navigate the changes um, in a very powerful way. And we we had an episode with him where we really just... Um, I just used the word just, um, we processed that whole world and how, how we can best serve the LGBTQ plus community. And as it turns out prior to the show, Genevieve had heard from TikTok about a trans man in Iowa or Indiana somewhere that had taken his life that day because some legislation that he'd been fighting with a group had turned around and gone the wrong way and he just despaired of change ever happening and we had a moment of silence prior to the show and it was just powerful and i just felt the pain of that community and what they've struggled with not only the lgbtq but even more so the trans community now and the the forces that are aligned against them in this country and in the world and that's the kind of programming I want to I want to be a part of. To talk. Yeah, and, not, and this, and this guy wasn't this answer. guy wasn't an out atheist. This is this is a guy right. who's sort of like still in the game, but you still know. a progressive right. pastor. And and that's the conversations I want oh, to make room man. for. Right. You know, yeah, that's great. Hey, I gotta let you go. Yeah, man, we could talk all day. I think I'm so I'm so glad. Thank thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you, man. I I want to get my book to you and see what you think. I um, yeah, I I think you you'll I think you'll like it. I, oh, I don't I'm say sure that lightly. Um, I'm sure it, I will. it really came out well, and it's not just another deconversion story. All right, all right, baby. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, friend. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. So that was it. That was me and Dave. His book is called Childish Things. I like. Kim, I think you'll like it. I hope you like me. I love you because uh, it's so meaningful to kind of be a part of a group of people that are kind of collectively communicating back and forth, trying to figure out how to make the most of this life and how to learn from people like Dave and how to learn from each other. And so, you know, thinking and doing are two different things, but Thinking is really important to the doing. And I'm really glad to be thinking this stuff through with you. 
And so, uh, yeah, you want a quote? I got a quote for you. I was going to give you the, um, the quote from George Bernard Shaw, who one of the things George Bernard Shaw said was, I want to be all used up when I die. But then I realized that I should really quote to you from Lisa Campolo, my sister, actually Lisa Goodhart now, um, who when she was like nine years old was in Chicago with my dad on a trip and they went on a guided tour of Chicago. And, and when my dad, my dad always says that when they got to this one place, the tour bus stopped and the tour guide looked in kind of that breathless tour guide, you know, voice looked down the aisle and said, ladies and gentlemen, in that alley, like umpty years ago, John Dillinger, the most notorious bank robber in American history was gunned down by federal G-men. And ladies and gentlemen, do you know that John Dillinger, when he died, having robbed American banks of more than a million dollars, died with less than a dollar 25 cents in his pocket. And my sister looked at my dad in that moment and sort of whispered to him. She said, wow, what great timing. What great timing. Yeah. The idea of like living in such a way that there's nothing left that you're all used up when it's over. And like, I'm, I want to be that guy. When I talk to a guy like Dave, I think I've still got a long way to go to being that guy. But I love this idea of squeezing as much as we can out of the opportunity that is given to us here. Um, that we are literally born into this world against our will, but with a, a, a marvelous opportunity. And we will die against our will. That's a, that's a quote from a Bob Dylan song. I was born here and I'll die, I'll die here against my will. Um, it may look like I'm moving, but I'm just standing still. I don't think we're just standing still. I think we're trying to figure out how to appreciate the opportunity. And I'm glad to be doing it with you. And we'll do it again next time on Humanize Me. an exclusive extra episode every month, please go to patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get Bart's monthly newsletter over there and get access to some great humanize me merch. Our supporters on Patreon are the ones making this show happen. For more information on Bart, go to bartcampolo.org. Also, if you choose to listen to the podcast on Spotify, we have a listener poll that you can take part in every episode, including this one. So join us on Spotify. Humanize Me is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. Hey, you could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars, you can live for you ever wanted. So thanks for the credits, John. Now let's go to like what is the maybe least listened to, but my favorite part of the podcast. Tell me the people that we got to thank. All right, Bart. So we're going to thank Michael Prawl, yes. uh, Nathan Aslinson, right. 
Nathan Delgado. Yes. Do you know Nathan? I do. Okay. He was one of my USC students back in oh, the beautiful. day when I was the humanist chaplain there. He's, he is beautiful. Ned McFarland. <gasps> yes. Michael Tenbrink. Right. Uh, someone who calls themselves non-random art. Wow. Is there... I'm going to just... I'm just going to assume that's not on the birth certificate. I think that's a Patreon name. You don't know. They might be a child of Elon... It might be Elon Musk's child from an earlier marriage. That's true. That is Um, true. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, non-random artist, you should send us an email and tell us more. Yeah. Tell us some some more about yourself. Or link us us to a piece of art. You know, like, like, hey, here's a picture of what non-random art looks like. Because that's it's fun. But thanks for thanks for being with us. We'd also like to thank Patrick Haleen and Michael Wilson for now. Yes. Oh man, we are a fortunate podcast, man. Hundred um, percent. I'm sure. I'm sure that Seth Rogen, if he ever started doing what we're doing, he would he would die. He would die like halfway down the list. Our, <laughs> our list is not as long as his. But I would say that in the in, in in terms of humanizing value, I, I I would put it up against anybody's in terms of like it's it's kind of human weight. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yes, thanks. These guys. are some high high quality folks. Yeah, thanks for making it happen. <laughs>